Why do startups fail? They've run out of money and they can't raise more. But that's too simple, right? It's like um, saying the, the victim died from loss of blood. Um, so many different things could have happened. Um, and, uh, and we need to invest. We need to dig deeper and keep asking why. Um, why did you run out of money? Why couldn't you raise more? Um, so we have uh, with us an amazing guest, uh, Tom Eisenman. So he is a researcher, uh, a professor, uh, Howard H. Stevenson, professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. And to anyone who's curious to learn why startups fail and what to do about it, and in whichever stage in the journey you are uh, in, this will be an interesting conversation to have. With that, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Awesome. So to start, walk us through your journey. Like what brought you to this uh, researching uh, the world of failures and startup failures? Well, um, what what brought me to this point was uh, being a failure at explaining failure. So it, it turns out, depending on how you define startup and how you define failure, um, something like two-thirds of startups fail. Um, that's in the United States, two-thirds of startups that raise venture capital don't generate a positive return for investors. And it's, at some level, that's a failure, right? If you, if you don't get um, money back to the investors, have you failed at least in one way. And, and um, eight years ago, um, former students of mine had launched a venture. Um, I, uh, I thought it was a fantastic idea. I had encouraged them. Um, I coached them on the idea. I actually was an investor in the company. And um, uh, they um, they raised a million dollars. They wanted to raise a million and a half. That's part of the failure story. Uh, they did exactly what I taught them in business school. Um, many of your listeners will um, be familiar with a, a movement called Lean Startup, which is essentially applying the scientific method to startups to have an assumption as an entrepreneur and then come up with a rigorous but very efficient test. So waste no more effort than you need to to get a, a rigorous signal on, on whether your hypothesis is, is right or not. And they did this. They um, This was an apparel company. So they were two tall women who had trouble finding clothes that fit them well, work clothes. And so they wanted to, to um, produce um, stylish, affordable, and here's the key, better fitting work apparel. It's pretty easy to do two of those three things. It's very difficult to do all three of them. And uh, uh, they, um, they ran tests. There's in, in the fashion business, there's a thing called a trunk show. So you literally bring in a trunk full of samples and you, 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 um, you get a group of, of customers, women in this case, and they try on the samples and they place orders. This is classic lean startup test, sort of show somebody an early version of the product and, and see if they'll buy it. And they did. Um, they, they purchased the, the uh, apparel in large numbers, gave the founders the confidence to quit their consulting jobs. They stepped away from BCG and launched the company. So they'd done um, minimum viable product tests, lean testing, um, launched the business. Sales were indeed strong and repeat purchases were strong, which is very important. Um, but they had trouble producing apparel that fit well. So the rates of return of the merchandise, it was sold over the internet direct to consumer business model. Um, the returns were not crazy high. They were on a par with other e-commerce sites. Um, but if your promise is better fit, that that's not good enough. 
and and it and it costs money to to process the returns. You have to ship a new version of the, of the article and so forth. And so they burned through the, their capital pretty rapidly. And while they were making progress, uh, they couldn't raise to, to my first point about startups fail because they run out of money and they can't raise more. They couldn't raise more. Had to shut the business down after a year. And so I could point to a lot of things that went wrong, but I couldn't pinpoint the the root cause of the failure. And that was upsetting to me. And so I set out to, well, I was a failure at explaining failure, set out to learn everything I could about what did academics say, what did smart practitioners, um, entrepreneurs and, and, and investors say about why startups fail. Uh, I interviewed uh, dozens and dozens of failed founders and the investors who backed them, uh, read everything that was ever written on the subject. And um, eight years later, here we are. Um, I have a book. <laughs> so. So, what is so walk to tell us what is fascinating about failures? Like, what is fascinating when it comes to startup and failure that that you found? Well, um, it, it's it's fascinating that um, it's complicated. Number one, we um, are wired up as humans to oversimplify explanations, um, both for good things and bad things, and, and um, when you talk to people about failure, you see you see that oversimplification. Philosophers call it the single cause fallacy. Mm. Um, and uh, anybody that's taken a psychology course has studied something called the fundamental attribution error. Um, fundamental attribution error works like this. Um, if um, somebody cuts you off, somebody driving a BMW cuts you off, um, you think that person's a self-centered jerk. Um, if you cut somebody off when you're driving, you think, oh my, there's a blind spot in my car. There's really bad designers at Volvo. Um, I, I uh, uh, you know, I got to be more careful, but that, you know, what really wasn't my fault. So the fundamental attribution error is if somebody else did it, it's a problem with their skill or will, their, their attitude, um, their motivation. Um, and if, if I do something wrong, it's circumstances not really under my control. Um, my my co-founder dropped the ball. The venture capitalist pushed me to follow a, a, a flawed strategy, whatever. Um, or, um, you, you know, a pandemic hit and, and my business didn't have a chance. So that's fascinating. So to really untangle what actually happened when you've, you have these flawed explanations, either from the third party or the first person account. Um, to, to really make sense of what happened um, is a puzzle. You, you, you have to be a detective to, to understand. And that's, um, that's why the, the book is built around case studies. It's how we teach at Harvard Business School. So it's all, it's all teaching around case studies. And a good case study will surround the problem from many perspectives. Interesting. So, so um, failures is yours and winnings are mine. So that, that, that's, that's a pretty, pretty interesting take. So, what are um I, i'm curious to know what are some of the misconceptions when it comes to failure or our understanding of failure uh in context of startup like do you do you know of some yeah no i think the biggest misconception is um so investors and and sometimes entrepreneurs will talk about jockey and horse the the um the jockey is the founder and the horse is the concept the opportunity and uh, investors will debate which is more important. And but I, I would say a majority of investors, if forced to choose, obviously you want both. It would be wonderful to have a fast horse and a very talented jockey. But if you have to choose, most investors would choose the jockey. 
Um, and, uh, and, and the reverse of that, if, if a company struggles, if it fails, they will blame the jockey. It goes back to the fundamental attribution error. So I think that's the, um, that is the, the biggest mistake. And then, and then, the, and then the notion that, um, um, it's one problem when in fact, it's often a constellation of, of, of things going wrong and, uh, and added together, they can, they can kill a company. Interesting. And, um, so when, whenever we talk about failures, we often, um, so there are great books like good, good to great. And, and, and basically we celebrate success, right? We celebrate success mm -hmm. and we shame failures, right? So any, if you are a, if you are a startup, um, and, and I think you, you touched upon in, in your book as well, that many times you, you, uh, basically push it, for, you, you push it further. You have no end inside. You keep pursuing it. How do you like so when you look at startups where where the idea of failure is sort of um, looked up or frowned upon when it comes to um, your progression? When you study failures for startups, like what where do your your mind come at at peace at this? Whether it's it's a it's an opportunity to learn and 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 pivot, or whether it's it's a shameful deceit that uh, that you have to run away from and not fail. Yeah, that, well, the stigma of um, of failure varies a great deal um, by culture. So um, I think it's stigmatized everywhere. Um, people in the United States, particularly on the coasts, right, West Coast and East Coast, will um, say that it's tolerated. And I think, in fact, it is tolerated to a greater extent than in other parts of the world. We don't want to be a, a failure in Japan or France. Um, I just gave a presentation to the Harvard clubs in India and, and heard that um, in India, uh, it's very difficult to fail. Um, and, uh, and people will hide it and, and avoid it if they can. So, um, but then, you know, you look at the United States, I would say China um, um, has a pretty aggressive entrepreneurial culture and in some ways, uh, very similar to the United States. So it does vary. And we also should um, draw a distinction between um, failures, daily failures, failures along the way. I mean, every, every individual, every business has small failures um, and, and a goal should be to learn from those um, and draw the distinction between those and the big failure, the, 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 um, the one that um, leads to the extinction of, of the organization. And, and so that's what the book is about. The book is, is not about the small failures, it's about the big one, uh, the, the, the one that ends the, the venture. Um, and. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, what's tricky about learning from failure is, um, I mean, learning, I mean, ph philosophers would tell you the only way you learn is if you can fail, right? Mm -hmm. If, if, um, if everything goes according to plan, um, and it's not obviously you've learned anything new, um, right? You had a plan, it worked, um, you were exactly, I mean, Maybe you have more confidence in your in your plan now. Maybe your um, your your assumptions. You have more confidence in your assumptions about cause and effect relationships. But but you haven't learned much. When something fails, either in a small way or a big way, now you have to figure out. Okay, I had some assumptions and they were wrong. So uh, what went wrong? And it 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 forces you to go on a quest to to sort of figure out. Um, um, was it something you did? Was it was a, a, a mistaken um, sense of, of, of cause and effect? 
And uh, the trick with, with the big failure, the, the failure that ends the company is it can often take years. And, and so we learn best from failure when feedback cycles are fast. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you, you make a move and you quickly get feedback on whether it was a smart move or not a smart move. And um, you learn best when you have repeated cycles and you learn best when you have a clear um, sense of cause and effect relationship. So weather forecasting is a, is a fantastic example, right? You, you make a forecast every day, sometimes several times a day, and you find out the next day or the next week whether you were right or not. Um, and um, meteorologists have this entire system of, of hypotheses about what moves the weather. So, um, and in fact, weather forecasters get better and better over time. Um, stock picking a little bit like this, but um, um, much noisier cause and effect relationships, so harder to learn. Um, the problem with uh, a, um, a, a, a an entrepreneurial venture is it can last five or ten years before it either succeeds or fails. And um, like in any uh, complicated human organization, there's a lot going on. So and and some of the relationships are nonlinear. So. Um, so you know you push on something, and you know, and you have no idea what's going to um, get get pushed um, in the in the distant future, or 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 or, or so. Um, and, and so it's hard for an entrepreneur to, and, and also there are very few repeated trials, right? You know, since an an entrepreneur may only do this three times in their life, so um, you know, to learn from one failure is is a very challenging thing. That's why vicarious learning is important. And uh, and when we study failure, if you if you go into domains like firefighting, um, or, um, uh, or 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 weather forecast, air traffic control is is a good place, right? Uh, the 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 National um, Traffic and Air Safety um, Commission will look at near misses and really analyze them in detail. And and pilots um, learning to fly will study those carefully because you know if somebody gets into trouble, and then you can actually figure out what they did to prevent the trouble. That's very powerful. So the book is very much in that spirit of vicarious learning, um, learn from other people's entrepreneurial failure, so you you don't have to go through it yourself. Interesting. So, when I think you had a very interesting point. So I was thinking about. Um, so I was discussing with one of the executives at WeWork a um, couple of months back about um, whatever happened with the WeWork story. Obviously, so they're beyond the startup stage. They're doing really good, and then suddenly, so. They were, they were a very good example of failures, right? So they were failures early on. Spectacular, an, an epic failure. Yeah, so so they, they keep on pushing it because sometimes it's good to not look at the failures and keep investing in where you're succeeding, right? And then that bubble keeps on increasing to a level where it's beyond anyone's control and then it bursts, right? So when, when you... Uh, I'm curious about your vantage point. So when you are, say, dealing with a startup and, and there, there's a two purviews, one purviews okay, I can see failures, but I can see progress. So let me just focus on the progress. We'll deal with the failure later. And then and then these hockey stick growth, and you talked about it when things are working, then you don't know where you have failed. So you, you have not learned your, your lessons, uh, due lessons. So what what is your, like what what's your take on that? Um, so if we look at WeWork in particular, I think WeWork is a classic example of a failure pattern in the book, um, the book the book is um, is built around six failure patterns. Three are early stage startups, first couple of years when the when the venture is still 
um, trying to find a product and a market that fit um, and, and mobilizing resources, team and money and so forth. And then three of the failure patterns are late stage. We, we've, we've got resources, we're growing, um, but the question is, um, can we continue to grow and grow profitably? And it turns out um, sort of two out of three early stage startups fail. It's still the case that one out of three late stage startups fail to make um, money for the investors. So that's one yardstick for, for failure as the, as the investors don't get their money back. And we work as a classic example of that. I mean, um, I, I think it's fair. I mean, who knows, it may rebound and someday be worth $80 billion again. Um, so, uh, but it doesn't seem very likely, does it? So um, the people who put money in at a very, very high valuation a couple of years ago are probably never gonna get that money back. And in that sense, uh, it is a failure. And, um, and, and, and I think it's an example of a failure pattern I call speed trap. So just like the policeman with the radar gun at the side of the road, and, you know, the speed limit is 40 miles an hour and you're going 65, um, you can get in trouble. And, and it, you know, growth is a tricky thing. It's one of, you know, what yes, what surprised me about failure, um, you know, it turns out sometimes the things you need to do to succeed as an entrepreneur grow are also the things that can cause you to fail as an entrepreneur, grow too fast, grow unprofitably. And, um, I mean, in some ways, um, because um, Adam was such a charismatic founder, um, he was able to raise, to dazzle investors um, and raise money at a gigantic valuation by painting this vision of a future um, that um, um, was very compelling. Um, but, but really, if you dug into it, um, they were leasing real estate and, re and sort of dividing it into smaller pieces and, and releasing it hopefully at a higher price. Um, you know, that business can work, um, but is it worth tens of billions of dollars? Um, doesn't seem like it. Is it a tech company that warrants a tech company valuation? Doesn't seem like it. And so I think this is probably evident to some people, but, but not enough people. And it only takes a few investors, you know, really excited um, and, uh, you know, once you have that money, um, and you've raised it at a very high valuation to get the next round of money, you actually have to, um, achieve some measure of success in order to raise the next round of money at a higher share price. And if you don't, you then have what entrepreneurs call a down round, which is a disaster. A down round is a signal to everybody in the company everybody with stock options that maybe their precious stock options are never going to be valuable, people will leave, um, and, a, and a company can unravel very quickly um, after a down round. So how do you sustain the valuation, um, keep getting steps up? You need to do whatever the, the um, capital market investors are looking for, in this case, grow. So uh, take all that capital, the billions you've raised, and plow it into more buildings and more leases and more marketing and so forth. But you know, it it, um, it it wasn't profitable growth. Um, and the question is, how long can an entrepreneur delude themselves into thinking that, well, yeah, we're losing money now, but um, maybe we can raise the prices in the future. Um, maybe we can sell other services to, to these tenants. Um, maybe, 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 maybe we can renegotiate the, the underlying lease with the building owner. Um, maybe, maybe, um, and uh, it can go for a while, but it can't go forever. That's that's a very very interesting take. 
so um, on that note so uh, theranos is an, an, an another example of a colossal failure right so now uh, when you talk about maybe selection bias or abundance bias so you have market that is aching to to find the next gem and and stand behind it and support it and then you somehow get this vision that somehow appears to be not far fetched it somehow look 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 achievable so from your vantage point when 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 one is uh, uh, putting out a startup and they are progressing they are growing it there are many things which are which are pretty uh, beehive or beehog uh, and then some things are achievable so from your vantage point um, how do you how do you decipher that um from uh, from the failure context that some things are meant it may happen or may not happen but it's not too far of a fetch to claim that you have a strong shot at it I, i'm curious about yeah, so 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 this is a second um late stage failure pattern that i talk about in the book i call it cascading miracles and um I love the term. I I learned the term from John Malone who was the entrepreneur who built um TCI was the biggest US cable television system operator and he got it from a a boss of his from General Instruments um um Marty Shapiro um and, and the notion is um uh there are certain ventures certain things in life where many things have to go right so think of a mathematical equation where you're going to multiply a times b times c times d and um if they all go right you get a big big jackpot a, a big payoff but if any of the elements are zero a or b or c the whole equation goes to zero um and the same thing same thing with a venture right so many things have to go right if anything goes wrong the, the venture fails um but if everything goes right it, it's a gigantic payoff and and so you need a cascade of miracles and 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 so the I mean we can come back to Theranos but the case study in the book um that illustrates this phenomenon is a company called Better Place um Better Place was um wanted to create a, a network of charging stations for electric vehicles all around the world um they raised 900 million dollars that the plan was actually in addition to sort of stationary charging stations like the one you might have in your garage um or 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 in a parking lot uh they were going to create battery swapping stations where a car would drive in a robot would pull out the depleted battery and pop in um a a fresh battery and do all that in 5 minutes of course you needed the cars to be designed with swappable batteries which means you got to get general motors and ford and 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 fiat and every car company on the planet to design to redesign their cars which is a big deal um and so that's uncertainty number 1 you know can we get the OEMs the car manufacturers to change their designs um uncertainty number 2 will people embrace electric vehicles um that wasn't clear when better place launched which was 2010 they did so that one went right uh, will government subsidize electric vehicles um was really important to to early success they did he got that one right um can we raise a billion dollars to get this business start 900 million to be more precise um charismatic founder shaya gassi um uh every bit as charismatic as elizabeth holmes at theranos or or adam neumann at at we work um he did so got that right um will customers embrace the battery swapping approach as opposed to fast charging so if you have a tesla 
and you want to go from city to city, there's now networks of fast charging stations out there. They charge the batteries like four times faster or five times faster, but they do a little bit of damage to the battery. So you don't want to do it every time. Um, and, um, and that turned out to be a better approach than swapping with robots. Um, and so on and on like this, and, and sort of actually they deployed the network in uh, Denmark and Israel, um, but it turned out to be incredibly difficult um, to encourage. They thought adoption would be high in Israel because almost everybody drives a company car. So if you could just persuade the corporations to do this, then you wouldn't have to do one consumer at a time. But the cars ended up costing uh, just as much as on uh, in, in a, in a fully loaded basis as gasoline powered cars. So there's no saving for the company, no saving for the consumer, and a lot of inconvenience. Sort of the danger that the, if the car only had a range of 100 miles, which was which was the range at that time, um, you um, you could find yourself stranded. Um, so anyway, you needed a cascade of miracles, and some happened, but um, several didn't, and the company failed and lost nine hundred million dollars. Um, Theranos, I think, is an example of cascading miracles. Sometimes they work. Um, Vishal, um, uh, Tesla is an example. SpaceX is an example. Elon Musk seems to specialize in um, getting cascades of miracles. Federal Express, if you go back to the mm -hmm. early 1970s, um, at the time was the biggest venture capital launch in history. And, and people thought Fred Smith, the entrepreneur who built it, was insane. Like, why would you... If you're shipping a package from Buffalo, New York to Cleveland, Ohio, why would you send it to Memphis, Tennessee, you know, and then back to Cleveland? That's hub and spoke was considered crazy. Uh, and the amount of capital, he'd have to have his own fleet of planes. In, in those days, you put a package on the belly of a, of a, of a commercial um, a passenger plane. So anyway, um, that's cascading miracles. And they often, um, you know, because the development cycle is so long for the products, um, you need a charismatic entrepreneur who can mesmerize um, the investors, employees, partners, and so forth. And, and often it works, um, but sometimes there's this fine line between um, persuasion um, um, and cult. Um, with Steve Jobs, we talked about a reality distortion field where he was so mesmerizing that he could persuade people um, by painting a vision of a better future to do the impossible. Um, join with him, work 80-hour weeks for a year, um, which is what the Macintosh team did, um, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes that field, the reality distortion field, will fold back on itself and keep the entrepreneur actually from seeing reality. Interesting. So now um, another interesting example that I, 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 I'm curious to have a perspective on is, say, BlackBerry. So uh, during the BlackBerry downfall um i i spoke to a bunch of their product managers right about what's going on inside how are things looking inside and and they all saying hey we were meeting our numbers we were asked to do something we realized we were but the market itself changed underneath right so the so how do you grapple with that fact when <clears throat> you are succeeding in what you do but somehow something else happened and accidentally jumped over and then you you got smacked What's, what's your take on that? I'm curious. Yeah, well, um, I mean, failures are often, um, I, I, as I said in the beginning, they're complicated. And, and sometimes they are a complicated mix of mistakes and misfortunes. So, um, and, and I suspect um, BlackBerry may have seen some of that. I mean, an, an example I think in, in the book that illustrates this well is a company called Jibo. 
Jibo um, was, still is, they still exist some out there, um, a social robot, mm -hmm. an, a, an amazing little device about, uh, about a foot tall. Um, it didn't walk or, or, or roll, um, it was stationary, but it had um, three separate segments that um, could move in very expressive ways. It could twerk, um, if, if, if everybody knows what that means. Um, and what was unique about, so it came out of the MIT Media Labs. Um, Cynthia Brazil was the, was the scientist and she'd been working on social robotics her entire career, really was a pioneer of the field. Um, originally to get robots that would engage the elderly to keep them um, in, intellectually stimulated or autistic children who might have trouble um, relating to a human, but um, they would talk to a robot. So that was the vision for Jibo. Um, they couldn't sell it as a product for the elderly, so they uh, turned it into a product that would you'd put in your kitchen um, and your surly teenagers who otherwise wouldn't speak to parents. You know, if there's a third party in between, maybe the robot could help the the um, teenagers and the parents talk to each other. And and what was distinctive about Jibo is it would actually initiate a conversation. You know, Tom. Um, I told you this morning the commute was going to be heavier than usual. How did it go? Um, you know, when when I came home from work, and and um, and people would build a real emotional connection to Jibo. Um, Jibo um, was originally conceived in a crowdfunding campaign, Indiegogo campaign, promised um, within 15 months for $500. Um, took um, about two and a half years to produce, and and it came out of $900 because it was much harder to design, um, especially the software. The hardware actually worked remarkably smoothly. It was the software that turned out to be a big problem. And um, while all that was happening, uh, Amazon launches the Echo smart speaker um, with Alexa inside for $200. Nobody saw it coming. No one saw it. We, we kind of expected um, assistance, voice assistance to be in our phone because of, of Siri and, and so forth, but nobody saw smart speakers coming. It, it took the it took the tech world by surprise, uh, and and um, and and Jibo, um, you know, now priced at nine hundred dollars, um, was both your friend um, and an egg timer, or you know, a weatherman. Um, you, you know, it provided the same utility as Alexa, but it also did this other thing. So, would there be enough people that want the emotional connection to a, a mechanical other? Um, and the answer was no, um, not at $900. Uh, so some people loved it. They actually held wakes for Jibo when, uh, when the server shut down. But um, that's a misfortune. And, and uh, um, the entrepreneurs could not have seen it coming. And, uh, and, and so Jibo was killed by some mistakes that the team made, but also by a big, big misfortune. Uh, fascinating story. So um, what about, so have you seen, graceful failures so failing gracefully so do you have some yeah. examples where if 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 there is a failing it should be done like this yeah that's actually exactly the term i use in the book um we, we and, and i teach a, a course at harvard business school on entrepreneurial failure um and and we um we, we teach the students um what are the elements of a graceful failure a and um a graceful failure um, a few things are true. Um, you, the entrepreneur, communicate openly and transparently to all the stakeholders. Um, it won't be a surprise to you that many um, entrepreneurs, when they fail, they sort of dive into a hole and because of the stigma of failure and, and, and they're not eager to communicate with anyone. 
And so it's the responsibility of the entrepreneur uh, to communicate clearly to customers, to partners, to suppliers, to investors, you know, all the way what happened and, um, and most importantly, what's going to happen to you, employee, to vendor, are you going to be paid? Um, investor, are you going to get any money back? Um, and uh, so communicating is important. Um, paying people who are owed money um, is the second aspect. So um, most um, startups will owe people money, lawyers, um, suppliers. Um, um, customers may have placed deposits. Um, employees may have a check coming. So everybody that's owed money uh, it, it gets the money gets the money in full. Not necessarily investors, right? That, that, that people who hold equity um, may get back ten cents on the dollar, and that's better than nothing. Um, but paying everybody who's owed money is another element of of a graceful shutdown. As is with employees, um, being very clear with them on what happens. Will your medical benefits be covered? Helping them get a job, um, and. Uh, so that's the second element. And then, then the third um, element of a graceful shutdown is an entrepreneur who's actually learned something from the experience. And it's um, um, not surprisingly, I mean, it's, it's, it can be a, an emotional battering. Um, I mean, an entrepreneur is the company, the company is the entrepreneur, the identities are intertwined. And so when the startup fails, it's, it's inescapable for the entrepreneur that a big part of them has failed. And that hurts. Um, you know, so you see guilt and shame and anger um, and regret and, and, and every emotion you can imagine. And when those emotions are so strong, it can be very difficult to learn anything, right? They cloud your ability to sort of make sense of a situation. So the entrepreneur has to let the emotions calm. Um, and that takes some time and some distance. Um, best way to do that, to recover and heal, is to alternate between ruminating, which is inevitable, and, and, and you're only going to learn if you think about what happened, and finding some distraction. Because if you do rumination 100% of the time, you'll, you will literally make yourself crazy. I mean, you'll probably become clinically depressed. Um, and, and so they have to find this balance between distraction and rumination and let time heal. Um, find a side project, do some exercise, whatever it is, some yoga. Um, and then um, um, the, 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 the challenge of learning from a failure is um, there are two responses. One is probably more common than the other. The common response, um, it goes back to the fundamental attribution error, is to blame other people. Um, wasn't my fault. My co-founder um, lost um, attention. Um, my investors pushed me in the wrong direction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you chose the co-founder, you chose the investor. So at some level, um, you've got to take some responsibility for, for those kinds of choices. Sometimes it is um, truly out of your control. I mean, COVID killed hundreds of thousands of, of, of young businesses through no fault of, of the entrepreneur. And so sometimes it's true. It is other people's fault or, or the universe is, is to blame. And... Um, at the other extreme are entrepreneurs who actually take too much responsibility for what happened. They beat themselves up. Um, I'm not good as, I, I, I wasn't a good entrepreneur. I never will be a good entrepreneur. I never should have done this and I should never do it again. And that's, that's sometimes true. Um, some, there are some people who are just temperamentally and psychologically ill-suited for the role, but they, they are rare. Um, and, and it's more often the case that it's more complicated than these people assume. So you, you want to avoid those extremes unless they happen to be true and find the space in the middle where you actually will take responsibility for what happened, understand what happened and your role in it. 
And if you can explain that to other people, um, that's actually the last aspect of a graceful shutdown. Um, it, you know, explaining um, what happened, your role and what you've learned from it and what you will do differently next time. And, and, and an entrepreneur who's paid people who owed money, helped employees get a job, communicated clearly and can explain what to do next, that, that's the entrepreneur who will bounce back stronger um, and gracefully. So one thing I was thinking about, so I was, I was speaking with um, a, a, an entrepreneur friend of mine. Uh, he's running a, a unicorn startup now. And, and, he, and he talked about, he gave a very good uh, analogy. He said, Vishal, you know what? Entre entrepreneurship to me is like a, a high rope jump trick on a, on a circus. So it's a trapeze game. And, and basically there's a swing going on. And then I'll jump. And in, in my progression, I'll just have to get three more jumps right. And hopefully the, on the other side, there's someone to catch me. Otherwise, uh, I'll fall. I'll fall, and there's, there, there, there'll be a huge spat. And then, I, then he said, what, "What is surprising to me was, but my worry is, I as an entrepreneur, I don't know whether I'm jumping or still on the swing, right? So, so his problem is that my anxiety point is, I can never give up till the last minute. But sometime when the thing happens, I'm already stuck on a wall, blasted there. So, so from and and when I was listening to about um, your graceful exit strategy, so I wonder, like, if 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 I if I if I combine both these philosophies, right? Don't give up till the end, or sort of jump or or fall gracefully. Like, how do you how do you come at accord between these two uh, theories? Um. So, um, one of the findings from the research is that um, if you talk to entrepreneurs who failed, um, a lot of them, many of them, will, a, a pretty large fraction of them will tell you they waited too long to shut the business down. And uh, um, it stayed on the swing too long, I suppose, in, 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 in that analogy. Mm -hmm. And um, um, there are a bunch of reasons for that. It, it's, it's, um, it, it's important to understand these reasons as an entrepreneur. Um, there are a lot of things you have to try when the company is struggling um, and each of them takes some time, right? You may do a pivot. You, you may sort of change your business model or target a new customer. And um, particularly if the company has some scale, um, it takes a lot of energy to move an entire company in a new direction. And then it takes time to see if the pivot is working. Um, you're going to try to raise more money. That takes time. Um, when that fails, if you try to raise from new investors, then you have to go back to your existing investors and try to get them to put more money in. That's incredibly um, um, emotionally um, fraught, uh, basically, for a whole bunch of reasons. They've now seen that you've tried a bunch of things and they're not working. They know a lot and, and they're debating whether they should throw good money after bad. Um, you'll try to sell the company. When you can't raise more money, you'll try to sell it. And, and, and here it's tricky because basically, um, you're going to get a lot of interest when you put your company up for sale. Every competitor in your space is going to want to take a look. Why? Of course, they want to see what you're paying your employees and talk to you about your strategy and so forth. So, uh, uh, but it's deceptive. It can be very deceptive, right? They can sort of string you along and and not really be interested, or or work you down. So, without killing you, you, you sort of weaken to the point where if they're going to buy you, they'll get a really good deal. So you try to sell, you try to pivot, you try some layoffs, you try a little bit of everything, and um, um, it, 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 the thing about startup failure is it's rarely 
one decisive event. You know, the, the, the rope on the swing breaks. Um, it's, it's usually a, a, a series of, of small wins and a larger number of small um, problems. And the problems are accumulating faster than the victories. And, and but you could hopeful humans can always sort of see a different pattern in that data. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other reasons, right? The identity of an entrepreneur is somebody who persists. And so if I throw in the towel, if I quit, am I a good entrepreneur? Um, an entrepreneur um, has a, an entire team that earns its living because of the company. Uh, they get their medical, somebody's having a baby, you know, and, and uh, we shut the company down. How will they, how will they pay their medical bills? And said, people, investors believed in me. So there's a whole bunch of, and, and often the founder has a problem of just not having anybody to talk to. Um, you got to be careful with what you tell your investors because you're trying to get them to put more money in. So you can't lie, you shouldn't lie to them. Um, but you may not be completely honest about your doubt about whether this is going to work. You can't be completely honest with employees um, and transparent with employees because if you are, they might leave and that'll accelerate um, the, the downward spiral. So you bottle all this up. If you're lucky, your spouse, by the way, and your friends have given up on you. You're now working 80 hours a week and you have been for the last six months. You, you've canceled the last four dinners with your friends. So um, no one has much patience um, for hearing you obsess about the business anymore. A, 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 lucky, a, a lucky entrepreneur will have a peer group like a, y, a YPO, Young Presidents Organization, or some place where people who mm -hmm. understand them and what they're going through, they can relate. But many entrepreneurs have nobody to talk to in this phase. So it's hard. And, and for all these reasons, people probably wait longer than they should. You know, if you, um, you can at least, you, you, your, your chance, uh, rather than waiting for a miracle, um, the, the, the upside of failing gracefully, if you're going to fail, um, is that that's, that's really a thing you want to do. Interesting. And um, one more area I, I really want your perspective on. So Nassim Talib, so he talks about being anti-fragile, right? So he talks about setting up guards and sort of making sure that if something happens, you become sort of come out stronger. So in a way, it's, it's a very weird way to, so, so whenever even I wear my entrepreneurial hat, and I, I read that book, it just doesn't come in accord, right? So from your vantage point, how do you how do you uh, grapple with that concept of being anti-fragile and on the other, other side, embracing failures? Like what, I'm curious to know your, your point of view. Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding of anti-fragile um, is it's at the system level. Um, a system benefits from um, big random swings. Um, because um, you know mistakes are going to go in every direction, but sometimes you you uh, discover penicillin, you, you know. So so if we allow for experimentation um, and do a lot of it and and, and are attentive to the mistakes um, and and the random swings, um, we may benefit. And so I think Silicon Valley, in some ways, um, is an anti-fragile system. Um, but that system is comprised of lots of individual actors and and um, and you, 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 you're gonna get a lot of failure um, because people try things. Um, they, they move, if you will, from the system's perspective in random directions, you know, trying out a lot of different things and most of them will fail and some of them will succeed brilliantly. And that's good for Silicon Valley system. It's good for society, um, but it's horrible for the individual entrepreneur, right? Um, 
that they don't have a portfolio of moves they're making. They make one move and mm. you know it's it's either in the right direction or more likely it's in the wrong direction. So, um, but for whatever reason, as a species, we're wired up um, to to, um, to have at least some fraction of of our organisms that will sort of go out to the frontier and try something new. We're lucky, um, you know. It's 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 easy to imagine um, us being a bunch of hedgehogs and we just everybody goes in a hole. Fair point. So, um, if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm reading this book. Um, what would you suggest? What would you suggest me, like if I want to make myself to be resilient to failure or it will have, like what What will you tell me? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, so I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, odds are high you're an early stage entrepreneur. Um, and so I would um, tell you about the early stage failure patterns and how to avoid them. Um, two, uh, th three, three big things stand out. Um, one of the early stage failure patterns has to do with um, having a good idea, but not being able to mobilize the entire set of players that have to come together to, to make that idea a reality. I call this good idea, bad bedfellows. And it's not just the founder, the jockey, it's also the other team members, it's the investors. Many entrepreneurs will have partners, right? The definition of entrepreneurship is doing something new without resources. Who has resources? Big companies. So a lot of entrepreneurs will partner with big companies and, and that can be um, a messy business, uh, a difficult business. And so um, it turns out that you're more, there's some businesses where industry experience is super crucial. I spoke in the beginning about this apparel company. Um, that's an example of a business where you really need to know something about designing and manufacturing clothing. Um, there are all these specialized roles, pattern maker, fabric sourcer, quality control, and they all have to fit together. And these entrepreneurs didn't have fashion industry design and manufacturing experience. So they made some mistakes in the kinds of people they brought into the company, bad bedfellows. Uh, they couldn't attract the right investors, um, bad bedfellows. The factories that actually manufactured their clothing didn't pay attention to them because they were a little peanut um, with no industry relationships. You know, so their orders got pushed to the end and you know in order to expedite an order for somebody else and so um, industry experience turned out to have been very important there if you look at a food and beverage startup um, it, 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 same thing um, what kind of packaging will jump off the shelf what's a co-packer and how do you work with them what are slotting allowances in grocery stores super crucial all these things um, you can get wrong. Many of the MBAs I work with are, are, you know, they'll create some new beverage and you know, they'll think it'll just fly off the shelves uh, magically. There are other businesses, many, many other businesses where you don't need industry experience. If you launch Instagram, you don't have to really have worked in photo sharing before or have worked for Kodak. You just, you, you need an intuition. People who launch dating sites all the time usually fail, but some, some of them who succeed don't have experience in dating services. So sometimes it's important, sometimes it isn't. An entrepreneur needs to know which they're in. That's one. The second is a false start. Um, um, the, the risk that in their zeal to build and launch the product and move as fast as they can, because that's what an entrepreneur does, uh, many entrepreneurs will skip upfront research. Um, before they start the engineering work, the, the customer discovery, have we really found a strong unmet customer need 
And then a good designer is going to generate a lot of solutions because there's usually many ways to solve a problem. The entrepreneur thinks he or she can see around corners and, and wants to get going. So they start engineering. That first version of the product is probably going to miss the mark um, because they've skipped this research. So they've wasted the amount of time it takes to build it, sell it, and figure out what to do next. Let's call that four months. Um, in order to save four months of upfront research, they've wasted four months later. And that's a false start. And it kills a lot of startups. I mean, it doesn't necessarily, you can still pivot away from the flawed first version, but if you've only got a, a year's worth of, of capital in the bank, either because you're bootstrapping or that's how much money you were able to raise, you know, to waste four months out of 12 is, is, is a bad, bad idea. Uh, and then the last um, thing I tell entrepreneurs, um, early stage entrepreneurs, is to watch out for false positives. So it turns out that every business needs early adopters. If you're lucky as an entrepreneur, there'll be some people out there that are just banging on your door. They want your product now. They've been waiting for it for a long time. And it's very tempting to expand aggressively in the direction of those early adopters and um, to give them what they want, the feature set they're looking for. It's often the case that the early adopters have needs that, that for features that are different than those of the mainstream customers. And Dropbox is a great example, right? Drew, Drew Houston, um, uh, his early adopters were software engineers, I mean, people with incredibly sophisticated um, requirements for file management, working on multiple devices, collaborating with other people, you know, big files, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, in his Y Combinator application, he talked about wanting to create a service that was so easy to use, his mother could use it to store her recipes. So he had this uh, nuanced understanding of the difference between mainstream and early adopter, and he had the discipline to not give the early adopters what they want. Sometimes you should, and then you should migrate over time. Sometimes you sh your mainstream product will be good enough for the early adopters. So you, you need to understand the difference, and you need a strategy for dealing with that any difference that, that you find. I think that's beautifully put. And to our listeners and viewers, so there is a there's a, a love letter or a letter to first time founder that you put on the book. And by the way, fascinating work there. It was it was pretty remarkable. And 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 thank you for sharing that. So uh, and thank you for walking us through 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 the the helping us understand the failures in the startup uh, context. So now we we are in a, a rapid fire section of of our conversation. So. Yep. Uh, how this works is I I, I I usher out a keyword or, or, or a word and just say whatever comes to your mind. You could just like uh, um, word, word association, one word response. Or, or, or just go like whatever comes to your mind. The first thought that comes okay. to your mind. Uh, love to know your perspective. So Got it. So you're like a uh, psychiatrist. <laughs> Startups. Startups. Upstarts. Entrepreneurship. Uh, there we got we have a definition at Harvard Business School um, pursuing novel opportunity um, before you have all the resources you need to capture that opportunity so doing something new um, without having enough that's entrepreneurship interesting failures misunderstood oversimplified growth um, key to success and failure Culture. I love Ben Horowitz, the venture, venture capitalist that Andreessen Horowitz um, defines culture. I, I love his definition. It's what employees do when their boss isn't around. Founder. 
Um, the um, heroes for society. Disruption. Um, misunderstood. A lot of people think they understand what Clay Christensen, the late Clay Christensen, was talking about without reading his book. So re read read the book is my response to disruption. <laughs> That's a fair point. Uh, jobs of future. Jobs of the future. Um, dispersed. More so than today. Future of Thank startups. Thank you, COVID. Yeah. Future of startups yeah. dispersed more so than in the um, thank you COVID. Um, we, we won't just be in London, Berlin, um, Mumbai, and uh, uh, San Francisco. Um, it'll be it'll be all over the place because of leadership. Um, we we can work from home. Sorry, future of leadership. Uh, same as the past. Humans humans don't change that fast. Thank you. Thank you for playing with us, Dad. And now we are at the tail end of the conversation. And I want to spend a few minutes on your journey. So we ask all of our guests to talk about some things that has helped them shape what they have become. Like what would you attribute, what qualities would you attribute to your, your current success? So um, have you ever talked to your audience about um, Hedgehog and Fox? No. Ah, so... Uh, um, do, do a Google search when we get done. That's a wonderful essay by the philosopher Isaiah Berlin. He uses it to explain Tolstoy of all things, but but it's it's a it's a bigger concept than than just one person. Um, and it goes back to Aesop's Fables, um, where um, the um, um, fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Um, and, and, you know, so the fox is an omnivore, will eat anything and rove all over the place, scavenging and hunting and so forth. The hedgehog just eats one thing. And, and the one big thing it knows is roll, how to roll up in a ball and protect itself, you know, sort of by putting its spikes out. And, um, and Isaiah Berlin would say that um, we all have an intellectual style that's either hedgehog or fox. So the mm -hmm. hedgehog has one big idea and uh, a hammer and everywhere um, they're pounding down with that hammer. And my uh, late colleague Christensen was exactly the hedgehog. Um, the, uh, he saw disruption everywhere he looked and he had a wonderful hammer for pounding on it. And my other colleague, Michael Porter, I think I see his book right behind you, Competitive Strategy, um, uh, is the consummate fox um, who um, never saw an idea he didn't like and had a brilliant mind for connecting all the ideas together. Um, we need both. Um, both types of thinkers can move the world forward. Um, I'm a fox. Um, never met an idea I didn't love. And, and uh, I think that's reflected in my book and, and, and in the whole style of, of the way I do research. Um, um, there's a, uh, uh, a disciplined lack of discipline um, when you're a fox. You, you, you need to cast a very wide net. I mean, from the number of books and diversity of books behind you, I suspect you're a fox too. <laughs> that's, I think that's the most eloquent way someone answered this. So <laughs> thank you for that. So um, we ask all of our guests to share some of their favorite reads. Like their, what, say it again. So some of, oh, some of your favorite reads. reads, some of the books that, that, that really shaped you or yeah, some of the books yeah. that you, you love. Um, you know, novels, Gravity's Rainbow um, by Thomas Pinchon. Um, serious sort of academic book. Um, the um, 
Um, there's a book by Graham Allison on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. Um, God, I can't believe I don't remember the title, but if you just do Graham Allison and Cuban Missile Crisis, it'll pop out of Amazon. And and what I love about the book is he he's a fox. He comes at it from three different perspectives, a sociological perspective, a game theoretic perspective, and I, I forget what the third is, sort of a you know political bureaucracy perspective, and each explanation for why the Cuban Missile Crisis unfolded the way it did. And then at the end, he tries to bring them together and he doesn't succeed, but but um, it's a noble effort. Book had a big influence on the way a fox thinks about, I read it when I was a doctoral student, one of my favorites. Interesting. So last but not the least, if you want something out for our listeners and viewers to take uh, The book away. is, uh, I, I, it came into my brain, The Essence of Decision. Essence of Decision. Essence of Decision. Awesome, thank you for sharing that. So if you want something our listeners and viewers to take away from this conversation, like what would that be? What would be your parting thought? Yeah, um, so um, it goes, you, you mentioned, you called it a love letter. I think that's it. That's, it's not what I called it, but it is a good way to talk about the way I end the book. And I'll, I'll end this conversation the same way, which is um, entrepreneurs get lots of advice. Um, and and the, advice is root, the advice is rooted in our conventional wisdom about what makes for a great entrepreneur. Um, and most of the advice is good most of the time, um, but if you follow it blindly, it can actually boost your odds of failure. So entrepreneurs here grow, uh, right? Mm -hmm. you, to succeed is not, as we've already established, growing too fast, growing unprofitably can cause problems. Be frugal because you've got limited resources, true. But sometimes you need industry expertise and if you don't have it, if you don't hire it, and if that person is expensive and you're too frugal, you can kill your company. Um, be focused, um, but you know, to your anti-fragile point, sometimes you need to try a lot of things and create some options so, so you can expand um, in, in the direction and, 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 and sort of have option theory. Um, and uh, uh, so you can, yeah, I could go on and on like this, be persistent. If persistence turns into stubbornness, um, then you can fail to pivot when the universe is telling you your, your horse, your idea isn't working very well. And, and, and so at the core of all this, um, you hear a lot, um, if you're an entrepreneur, about trusting your gut, trusting your instinct. And I suspect your friend on the trapeze uh, um, thinks this way, sort of, you know, mm -hmm. my instinct will tell me, my gut will tell me when to let go and sort of jump from one place to the other. And uh, again, um, that's a big asset for an entrepreneur, moving nimbly, um, especially if you're competing with big, slow corporations. Um, but uh, there's some set of decisions, um, and, and, and Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, talks about system one thinking and system two thinking. System one, sort of the flash of intuition, what a firefighter has to do when he walks into a burning building, sort of make a split second decision about which way to go, um, versus system two, deliberate planning, trade-offs, um, pros and cons, all that stuff. And we need both, um, and an entrepreneur needs both, because if you trust your gut, on the big decisions, you know, who should be my co-founder? Should I take money from this company? Um, you know, have I got the, the, the right customer segment? If you trust your gut and you move too quickly, your gut will be racked by emotions and, and, and will cloud your decision-making. So slow down is the, is the last advice. Slow down, think some of these decisions through and uh, sleep on it, sleep on it two nights, write up the pros and cons, share them with somebody smart who understands you and understands your business and just slow down a little bit. Beautifully put, and and with that, thank you so much for your time. And I'm curious, what's next for the what's next for why startups fail? Um, 
for the project? Yes. Um, um, you know, I mean, there's a ton of work. I'm, I'm interested in qu questions around gender. Um, you know, it turns out that female-founded startups fail at about the same rate as male, but females are less likely to found again after their startup has failed. And, and we don't know why. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, it's hard to believe they aren't just as good as entrepreneurs as if their first version failed at the same rate. You know, why don't, why don't they come back and do it again? So questions like that. Um, I haven't spent enough time in an international context. There's whole sets of business. I mean, a lot of the work is is grounded in tech startups, which is which is what I know. But there are many, many other kinds of, of businesses out there. You know, I want to see um, the extent to which these ideas generalize across a range of different types of businesses. Awesome. So with that, uh, Tom, wish you nothing but success on the book. You're always welcome back on the podcast. Uh, so. Uh, to our listeners and viewers, uh, there'll be a description on the, where to get the book from. And 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 Tom, so where can people write, read about you? Um, yeah, so the, probably the best way is just to find me on Twitter. Um, okay. It's it's my last name, Eisenman with a T in front, Tizenman, at, okay. you know, at Tizenman on Twitter. And uh, that'll steer you to my um, Harvard Business School bio page and so forth. Awesome. With that, thank you so much for your time and uh, wish you yeah. nothing but success and good luck. Thanks, Michelle. Bye-bye. Bye. So I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. Yeah, I just I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable. Don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once. That's it. And I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down. I hope I'm not up on